So here we have uh, Zacchaeus in Luke 19. By the way, this is set in juxtaposition to the rich young ruler in Luke 18. It's interesting that the rich young ruler comes to Christ really so much more humbly and even regally than Zacchaeus does. Right? He's, he's able to have quick, intimate access to him. A man of privilege perhaps is able to arrange such things. But yet, at the end of the day, him and all of his sophistication, him and all of his respect that was his by the society around him, all the street cred that he had, nonetheless, he goes away face-fallen, sad, because he could not answer the call of Christ. He wanted his righteousness medium well. On his own terms. And yet Zacchaeus, that he knew he was a wreck. And sometimes recognizing that is such an advantage. And to have a depth of humility that Zacchaeus has, rather than a feigned humility like the rich young ruler had, the feigned humility is only going to get you so far and also never get you to Christ. Here's the encouraging part. There was no doubt in anyone's mind as we sat there yesterday and we heard your prayers, we heard your confessions, and we heard your apologies, and we heard your proclamations that this is clear and biblical and genuine, sincere humility. Praise God that this is a work that has been done. This, this is rare, by the way. Off the charts, rare. To have a, a community of people that are truly this transparent and, and this unified and also this desiring of the work of Christ in their lives. Amen. But let's see someone who is, who is likewise desperate and decides to get humble with Jesus coming down the road. We're, we're finding Jesus as he's about to make his way into Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho is, is just below Jerusalem. Literally, you go straight up from, from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jesus is making his way because he is heading to his cross. But... As he's heading to his cross, he comes through Jericho. And here we pick up the story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, I'll be stopping along the way here. And again, since this is more of a preparing ourselves for communion, I'm not going to, in a sense, have points. But, but hopefully there's one main idea that's going to keep coming through to us here. Let me just give a... A quick background, a lot of us already know this, but to be a Jew and to be a betrayer, to leave your community solidarity of opposition to the invading Romans and to be so despicably a betrayer that, that you would then collect money from your own people to give to your oppressors. That, that won't fly. We don't really know what it is to have in, a, in an invading country oppress us. But I am Lithuanian and my, my family, my mom came here from Lithuania. And I know that growing up every year, I kind of schlep on up to, to Elizabeth, New Jersey, to the Lithuanian uh, Fellowship Hall up there. And in, in March, in February, March of every year, we would celebrate Lithuanian Independence Day as I was a kid. And this was during the you know, late 60s, 70s. And I remember saying to my mom, okay, we're coming up here for Independence Day for Lithuania, but Lithuania is occupied by the Soviet Union. Do you not realize 
That something is amiss here? Fourth of July means something because we're free. But this event, it, it kind of rings hollow, does it not? To us all. But, but the one thing that I did gain is during that meal is to be able to appreciate the depth of bile of bitterness that would spew from the mouths of everyone as they broke open the bones of their chickens and sucked out the marrow. It's just what they all did. They're Lithuanians. But, but as they would talk about those nasty Soviets, how dearly they hated those Soviets. Two of my grandmom's brothers actually died as partisans, as, as uh, guerrilla warriors, uh, try, trying to you know, kind of oust the Soviets fr from the country. We, we knew what it was, at least in our home, to, to be an oppressed people. We knew every day what it was to have that absolute revulsion to all things Soviet, to the hammer and to the sickle. If we had known that anyone in our family was such a turncoat as to have actually gone over to the Soviet side, you know that that would have gone down for like 20 generations of legend of shame upon shame. There, there was none that we knew because it was such an impossible thing to have ever been so weak, so self-serving, so individualistic among our community to go and do such a thing. But nonetheless, Zacchaeus did such a thing to a greater degree. He actually broke ranks with his people to go and serve the oppressors, the Romans. And not only to serve them, but rose to the level of chief tax collector. And even worse, the money was coming from his own people, somehow lining his own pockets so that he could benefit from the spoils of the mess that was going on there. He wanted to see who Jesus was, verse 3. But because he was a short, because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So we, you know, we have the, the happy little stories of Zacchaeus up in a tree in our mind and the songs that he was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. That doesn't capture it. Think about absolute revulsion. And why was it that he couldn't see? Could he not maybe make his way you know, towards the, the, the front of the crowd? He could not. You know why? Because if he tried to go this way, I'm sure the wall of everyone taller than him were more than happy to shut that jerk off. This was the shame and the status that clung to this man. But there was something about Jesus that he had either heard about, somehow it stirred him, and he decided, this is a big move, but maybe it's worth it, and I'm going to climb this tree. If you're a grown man in first century Palestine, that is an absolutely undignified event that would also be marked for the rest of your life. Sure, little kids climb trees, but here's another aspect of this that we don't often talk about, but is, is mentioned, and I'll, I'll have to speculate on something here. In Exodus chapter 20, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, there is a prescription for how you make an altar. And one of the things that the altar cannot have, it cannot have steps. The altar cannot have steps. 
And this is why, it says, because inadvertently, because of the, the, the clothing that was worn in that area, because it was a tunic with, with a cloak over it, to walk up the steps, you might inadvertently, this is what the Bible says, expose your private parts. This now gets even more shameful. Now, if Zacchaeus did not gird his loins, and perhaps he did not have the opportunity to do that in, in the quick events that were going on there, and if he decided, you know what, I, I'm just going to go ahead and climb the tree, that means, and, and even if it wasn't visible, the, the fact that he was up there was that he did not even give concern to the prohibitions of being up above when the opportunity for the indescribably disgusting from a biblical point of view was presented. And so for anyone to look up at Zacchaeus, they, they would have to almost like shun their eyes so that they would not transgress against even the word of God. So not only in his character, in his career, but now also visually, he is a blot on their society. You cannot get worse than what he is at this moment. And it's at this moment that Jesus comes by. And so let's, let's pick it up here. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. And there, there's grace in him saying that. It's like, just, just stop it. All right, I mean, you're shaming yourself. Come down. I must stay at your house today. So come down at once. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now to us, we hear, you know, I, I need to stay at your house. You think, well, okay, that's nice. So, you know, he's going to kind of have a, a little connection there. No, no. The, the idea of, of welcoming someone into your home or going into the home of someone and to be welcomed there spoke volumes to a first century Jew. Table fellowship spoke of a connection that we can't even begin to appreciate. It meant that, that you were affirming a deep love bond with this person. There are many families in Palestine, even to this day, that they may do a lot of things with one another, but they will not allow that person into their home. They will not allow them at the table in their home. This was as though Jesus were ratifying the honor of Zacchaeus before the crowd that would have been happy to stone Zacchaeus. For Jesus to do this for Zacchaeus in front of everyone, a crowd that was obviously pro-Jesus, they're not lining the streets to jeer him, they're lining the streets because they are astounded at him. In just a moment, they are going to be putting down the, the, the branches. They're going to be singing, Hosanna, Hosanna! He saves, he saves! Hosanna, coming in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees wouldn't enjoy it. They'd be shut them up. And of course the disciples, hey, you know what? Even if they shut up, the stones will cry out. So this crowd that is there is, is in hopeful anticipation with a messianic fever at this Jesus that is coming through. Every word that he says is weighed heavily by them all. And a word from Jesus concerning Zacchaeus would, would actually be worth more than they could ever have anticipated. 
And so the word is, I affirm you. Jesus, of all the people that are there in this crowd, there's one, if, if all of the crowd had to take a vote of, all right, who's least in the kingdom of heaven? Right? I mean, you know, the Bible, of course, talks about that, that you hear whoever's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. But somebody is least in the kingdom of heaven. Right? Even in our fellowship, right? In our worldwide fellowship, somebody actually is least. Maybe we'll never, you know, definitively figure it out on, on, on this side of Jesus' return. But somebody is least. I think if that crowd were to say, who's, who's least among this crowd right here? Oh, pfft. what the heck? Check him out. I mean, Danny DeVito exposing himself is the worst. Don't look. Don't, please don't look. But it's that thing in the tree. That's the worst. Who is called by Jesus? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. What has he done to deserve this love? Nothing, right? Nothing. But now look at the power of the call. And let's look at Zacchaeus' response. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. I can just imagine joy spilling out from his heart. Me of all people, I never, I just wanted to get a glimpse. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone, well, I have, but if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. There is power in the call of God. And the power of that call not only produces salvation, but it also produces in us a deliverance from all of our indignities and shame and mess and enslavement to sin. And it did that for Zacchaeus as well. The simple affirming call of God to him suddenly started a fire of joy within him that spilled over in an expression of godly sorrow that we would all do well to heed. This is a poster child for godly sorrow right here. Of an appropriate response to the grace that has been offered our way. So transforming in his life. By, by the way, in American history, they often do a poll of who are the most insignificant, most unforgettable presidents that we have. Sometimes Millard Fillmore rises to the top, but often it's Chester A. Arthur. And the reason being is, is that not, not only is he absolutely forgettable, uh, not only was he not elected, but, but also... Because he was such an unlikely character to ever make it to the presidency. He's very much like a Zacchaeus figure in the American landscape. He, he rose to kind of political office during what would be considered the Gilded Age. And he did almost like what Zacchaeus did. He became the collector of the port of New York under the Roscoe Conkling machine of New York City, the political machine. 
It was the time of graft and corruption at its worst in America, where income uh, disparity was worse than even it is now. During that time, Chester A. Arthur had the highest paying job in government. And on top of that, was also able to pocket quite a bit to become, even though a government employee, the most lucratively rewarded, whether honestly or dishonestly, government employee in all of the United States. During that time, he was known as a dandy. That, that is someone that was maybe overly conscious of the way he dressed. Uh, there are many receipts in the Chester uh, Arthur Presidential Library of how much he spent on fine cigars, how much he spent on waistcoats or, or vests. He was a shallow man. In the midst of all of this, the 1880s roll around, and he has recently, by Rutherford B. Hayes, also a forgettable president, by the way, uh, has been fired, has been fired from his position as the collector of New York. Why? Because he's so corrupt. And now he's operating as a lawyer. I don't know if that's a big step up, but... <laughs> But in the election of 1880, <laughs> thank you for your charity. Uh, in the election of 1880, <laughs> he actually is presented by Roscoe Conkling, one of the party bosses in the Republican Party that is having two big factions amongst itself at this point. But he is presented as the way that the Republican Party can get the New York vote. And he basically says to the James Garfield ticket, James Garfield is nominated as president, and if you want to have a chance of winning this election and you want to be, have, be able to take one of the major swing states, and at that time New York was a major swing state, then you better put Chester A. Arthur on your ticket. And they do. And as soon as they do, the press goes wild, saying, and this is one of the quotes from the press, Chester A. Arthur may be the least qualified man ever to rise to the position of vice presidential candidate. Never remember vice president, vice presidential candidate. Never was elected to an office, never had done much at all, other than just kind of do craft and corruption really well and to be the henchman for Roscoe Conkling. But Roscoe Conkling was a kind of a moving figure party boss in all of this. And at the same time, there was in America something called the spoils system. So when a party is elected to office, the way that you could kind of reward your supporters is you give them these plum jobs that allow themselves to engage in graft and corruption at the expense of the American economy and the government's coffers and stick that money into your pocket. The worst offender, by the way, traditionally has been Chester A. Arthur. And, and now it's a time where they're trying to reform graft and corruption and Garfield is actually running as a reformer and he gets Chester A. Arthur on his ticket. Now, all seems to be okay because, you know, Garfield, he's in his young 40s. He's hardy. He's a Church of Christ uh, minister earlier in his life, by the way, too. And a professor. Very smart, by the way. He could write Greek with his right hand and, and Latin with his left hand. Some say that's an apocryphal story, but I don't know. He's, he's kind of a, a, a vigorous guy. He had young kids who, you know, kind of play on, uh, on the lawn. But this is now 4th of July, 1881. It's hot in Washington, D.C. And he decides that he's going to go uh, have summer vacation at the most beautiful place on earth. Does anybody know where that is? The Jersey Shore. Yes, exactly right. So off he, off he goes. 
Off he goes to the Jersey Shore. But as he's at Union Station in Washington, D.C., someone who was upset about the, the spoil system shoots him. Shoots him in the back. During that time, there's three months of horrible treatment by doctors where the infection from the doctor sticking their hands in trying to get the bullet out actually you know, makes, makes his condition that much worse. During this time, the press is in an uproar. Like, oh no, please, Lord, save Garfield because we will have Chester Arthur as our president. And Garfield got shot for being a reformer of the spoils system. Waiting in his wings is the poster child of the spoils system. And many thought, maybe Chester Arthur and, and Conkling were behind that shooting. But when it turned out that the, uh, the, the fellow who shot him was clearly deranged, that they realized, no, no, he wasn't. So Garfield does die, but not after having special tracks built. This is an important part of the story. Please listen. Special tracks built right to Elbron, New Jersey, nestled right north of Deal, New Jersey and, and Long Branch, New Jersey, where I grew up, by the way, the most beautiful place on earth. And there he died. Okay, maybe it's not that important to the story. And then, <laughs> Arthur is president! Ah! <laughs> and something happens that nobody anticipated. He immediately fires all of the appointees that had anything to do with Conkling. And then when Roscoe Conkling goes to call on him, he refuses to allow him into the White House. And then he begins the most radical campaign to reform the spoils system, more successful than any president had ever been able to effect. Goes on to be one of the most effective administrators as president. Even Mark Twain, who is pretty good at taking down people on notch or two, especially public figures, all he could say about Chester A. Arthur was, there may never be another administration that will be equal to the honor of his. Wow. And when people said to Chester A. Arthur, what happened to you? And this is what he said. I was called to the vice presidency by Roscoe Conkling, but I was called to the presidency by God. Wow. That's the power of the call to transform Chester A. Arthur, who you may never have heard of besides being the elementary school in Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> Chester A. Arthur Elementary School. <laughs> it's also the power of the call, the power of the call to transform Zacchaeus. And it's also the power of the call as we have all been called out here in Tacoma it's the power of the call that now transforms you. Amen. This repentance is not being self-generated. Make no mistake that this repentance is not just a turning from all of the malaise, third soil individualism. It's not just because, ah, we're, we're sick of that. No, this call is because there is Jesus that calls every one of us. It is, a, it is a turning to Jesus. The significance of this call to the Tacoma Church is the call of Christ. We all like sheep have gone astray, but now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Amen. Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
Why? So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. First Peter 2. Then it goes on to say what I just said. We all like sheep have gone astray. But here's the, the bigger question here. Why is Jesus able to give honor to, to Zacchaeus? Why is he able to dignify an undignified man? Why is he able to remove shame from the most shameful man in the next five counties? Why is he able to, to, to say to Zacchaeus, come down from the tree? Why is he able to say that? Because Jesus is on his way to go up to the tree for Zacchaeus. Wow. Wow. Jesus is on his way to take all of Zacchaeus's betrayal, all of Zacchaeus's graft, all of Zacchaeus's corruption, all of Zacchaeus's weakness, all of his individualism, all of the ways that he has forsaken his people, and he has taken all of Zacchaeus's shame, all of it. And Jesus is lifted up, not just on steps, but Jesus is lifted up on a tree. Jesus is exposed. Jesus is laid bare. Jesus becomes an object of scorn. Jesus takes upon himself everything that makes Zacchaeus so putrid. And in doing so, makes Zacchaeus beautiful. Honored, dignified, substantial. He does all of that because he goes up the tree for Zacchaeus. And he does it for every one of us. We get to turn now. We get to be honored now. We get the significance now of being the body of Christ. Not just because we have a here and now I, I, I turn attitude. No. We get to have that attitude because Jesus himself bore our sins. Amen. Jesus himself on that tree bore the shame of our individualism, bore the pain of our pride, bore the indignity of our indifference. On that tree, he bore all, all that we've done to sully the body of Christ. But he bore it all. Why? Because he wants us to be nothing less than in Tacoma, the body of Christ with glory. The body of Christ with clarity. The body of Christ that approaches the throne confidently. He wants us to not be hindered at all by any thoughts of anything behind us, but to turn and to live our lives, moving this place forward, in recognition of what it is that he has taken on so that it never clings to us again. So that just as Zacchaeus is able to have an appropriate response, look, exclamation mark, Lord, here and now, I give half, half of all I've got. A tenth is, is, is what would have been required. He went way beyond that. And if I cheated anyone else out, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, of, of, of anything, and I have, I'll, I'll pay him back four times as much. He gave 400% more than he needed to in that. That's an appropriate response for us as well. Realizing that because of all that we've done, even communally, Jesus went up the tree for us. He took all that we talked about yesterday on the tree for us.
so that it would never in any way impede us. Not one step that we take. He wants to make sure of that. All of this is not born out of a greater discipline of, of, of the church here. All of this is born out of a response to the greater love that Jesus has for us and still has for us and still calls to us and still honors us and still looks to us to do His great work. How amazing is that? An appropriate response for us, I think today, as we move forward without anything clinging to us, is to likewise proclaim. Proclaim what it is that, that, that this has moved us to do. That we've been called. We've been turned here and now. What is that here and now for you? I know that in a minute, some of the leaders are going to come up and share based on all the sentiment, the beautiful sentiment that we heard yesterday in the prayers, in the apologies, in the spirit conviction. What the here and now is for us since Jesus went up the tree for us. And he went up the tree for Zacchaeus so that he could then have table fellowship with Zacchaeus. And we now have table fellowship with Jesus. We now can take the body and the blood of Christ, the body that bore our sins and the blood that washes all of this away. By coming into Zacchaeus' home, having that table fellowship, it's also the recognition that this is what Jesus wants for us. And, and as we take this communion now, even the word communion itself, which comes from 1 Corinthians 10, where it talks about, is not this cup a participation in the blood of Christ? Is this not this bread a participation in the, the body of Christ? The cup, the bread, are reminders of not just participation, but the depth of what that means. Koinonia. Solidarity. Affirmation. We proclaim Christ until He comes. We also proclaim that we are His body. And that in solidarity with Him, that we are absolutely one, and we are absolutely one with Him. That we are to have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. And how does Jesus end this episode? For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's our very great charge. We don't live lives of small desperation. We live lives of a transcendent divine charge. Who gets to have such purpose in their lives? But in solidarity, in communion with the body, we are proclaiming that oneness. And then as we take the cup, appreciate this fully, and it is beautiful thought, that everything that we confessed yesterday, everything, whether it be personal or even communal, everything despite being given everything by the Spirit to be the body of Christ, and, and yet we've, we've transgressed. Everything is washed away by the blood. All of this punctuated by the grace of God. Punctuated by Jesus going to the cross for us. So that we can have nothing but the most excited of all eagerness to shout out as well, here and now. Here and now, Lord. Here and now we serve you. Here and now we are now the Tacoma body of Christ. Ready. Ready to do your great work. Ready to honor you.